All right, we're going to get into our second session tonight. Our second session tonight is The Mark of the Beast. And lots of people have speculated as to what the mark of the beast is, and we're going to try and unpack it as simply as we can tonight so that we can understand this subject. There's a bit of a clue right at the beginning of the Bible. There's a story in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, of course, they believed the devil more than they believed God, and they ended up being uh, outside of the Garden of Eden. And then they had some kids, and their first two children that we are told about are Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel both brought an offering to God. They, they were aware that, uh, the, well, Abel was aware of the symbolism of a sacrificial lamb. He brought something from the flock and sacrificed that to God as a symbol of the Lamb of God who would die for our sins, which was Jesus. Cain decided that he was going to worship his own way. Cain decided that what he brought was going to be good enough and he just brought fruit and vegetables. There was no death required. And the Bible says that God was pleased with Abel's offering but not so with Cain's offering. And Cain got a bit annoyed about that. And God said, don't be downhearted, you know, um, don't, don't rebel and sin because death lies at the door. Anyway, Cain ended up getting mad with Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Now, I want you to get this. Abel worshipped according to God's instruction and God's plan. Cain wanted to do it his own way. The one who wanted to do it his own way ended up persecuting the one who wanted to do it God's way. And then the Bible says, and the Lord set a mark on Cain. The one who persecuted the other received a mark. And that's a little bit of a clue as to what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. The mark of the beast is all about who, what and when and where you worship. It's all about who you worship. And that's what the issue is over. Let's go to the Bible. In Revelation chapter 14, Verse 9 and 10, we mentioned this before. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives them, his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Here is that most severe warning given in the third angel's message, and it's for those who worship the beast's image and receive his mark. And so this is why this is important, why we need to know what the mark of the beast is, because the Bible says, don't get it, don't receive it. What is the mark of the beast? Some people have said, well, the mark of the beast is a barcode. You ever heard that before? Some people said, well, a barcode, it's the mark of the beast, so don't eat any food that has the barcode on it. And they all starved to death a long time ago. And other people wondered, you know, is it a microchip? Have you, have you seen, did you see that story of a guy in the States, actually no, it was a company in the States, that were offering their employees to get a microchip put in their hand? And you'd sort of, you know, put that in and you'd get through the, the gate or whatever and you could even use it to buy your lunch. I don't think I'll be signing up for that myself. However, is it a microchip? The Bible does not say that the, the, bar, you know, the mark of the beast is a microchip. What about 
you know, because one of the reasons they say it's a microchip is because, you know, it's in the forehead and in the hand, and maybe that's, you know, they're going to punch you in the hand with them. It's not a microchip. Is it a tattoo? They think, you know, you're going to put a mark on the forehead. I've seen people who've got tattoos on their forehead, right? Is that what it means? No. The Bible, actually, I've seen a translation of the Bible that says um, it talks about a tattoo in the head or in the hand. That's not a great translation because that's not what it says. It says there's a mark in the forehead and in the hand. What does that mean? We're going to unpack that as well. So what is, if it's not these things, what is the mark of the beast? In order to answer the question of what is the mark of the beast, the first thing is we need to ask this question, who is the beast? And we already discovered that in our previous presentation. And uh, we did a comparison between that and the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And we recognised that this is the Roman papal power. That is who this beast power represents. So when it talks about the mark of the beast, the first thing we have to know is who is the beast? Because it is the mark of the beast, right? It's not the mark of Russia or the mark of China or the mark of whoever. It's the mark of the beast and we have to understand who that beast is if we're going to understand where the mark comes from and what it is. So who is the beast? We've learned that already and we won't go into that again. Before we get into what the mark of the beast is, we need to understand that in the book of Revelation, at the end of time, everybody is either sealed or marked. Everybody who's alive when Jesus returns will either have the mark of the beast or they'll have the seal of God. They're going to have one or the other. And so what we want to do tonight is we're going to have a little bit of a look at what the seal of God is and that might help us understand what the mark of the beast is. Let's have a look at it. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, it says this, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. In verse 1, it pictures these angels are holding back the four winds of strife. You remember we had a question about the four corners of the earth. It's basically the four compass points of north, south, east and west. And you've got the picture here is the angels are holding back the winds of strife on planet earth. And it's saying, do not harm the earth, the sea. Do not release those winds of strife until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So... Our world would be much worse than it is today if God wasn't holding back the winds of strife. God in his mercy is holding back the winds of strife. And he's saying, don't let those winds go till we have sealed the servants of our God. And it says, sealed them in their forehead. Right? Yeah. To have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. There is another description of this, and it's in Revelation, the 14th chapter, verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000. Don't ask me about that. Put it in a question. I'll deal with it later. The 144,000, 
having his father's name written on their foreheads. Let me, maybe I'll unpack it now. Basically, the 144,000 are those who are faithful and still alive when Jesus returns. I do not believe it's a literal number. You read all the details about the 144,000 and it can't really be literal because it says there are 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from that tribe and 12,000 from that tribe and I don't think I'm in any of those tribes, right? And, and how would it be that only exactly 12,000 are from the tribe of Issachar and only exactly tri- you know, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher? It represents the people of God at the end of time just as the 12 tribes represent God's people in the Old Testament, it's symbolic for God's people in the New Testament. The book of Revelation is full of symbols. And uh, by the way, when it says 144,000 there, did you know the wall of the New Jerusalem is 144 cubits high? That's the home of the saved, right? It's representative of God's people. Enough said. Then I looked and saw these people, it says, having their father's name written on their forehead. So evidently the seal of the living God has something to do with the father's name, right? Now the personal name of God in the Bible is Jehovah. It's probably not pronounced that way. It's probably pronounced Yahweh or something like that, but we'll call it Jehovah. Okay, that's the personal name of God. It's the the word, the name that's used for God and nobody else. And it's interesting where we find that name. We're going to look for the seal of God and God's seal or mark of authority. What is God's seal or mark of authority? Typical, typically in ancient times, there were many of these seals. Sometimes people would seal documents. A king might seal a document with his ring that would have a, like a signet ring. You ever heard of a signet ring? Because it's got your signature on it, so to speak. Um, Another way, other ways they've, they've found lots of these seals that you roll, that have soft clay, and they'd roll this seal and it'd leave an impression in the clay, and then it would harden. But they had lots of these seals, and a seal would contain the name, the title, and the territory of that ruler. And what's fascinating is when you look in the Bible at the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, it contains these three elements of the name, the title, and the territory of God. Notice it says here, for in six days the Lord, that's Jehovah, made the heavens and the earth, well made, that is him as creator, that's his title, he is the one who made everything, he's the creator, and the heavens and the earth, that's the territory over which he rules. Okay, the Lord, creator, the heavens and the earth. And it says, the sea and all that is in them and rested the the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. When you read the whole of the uh, fourth commandment, you find the name Jehovah there three times in the fourth commandment. It's the longest of all the commandments. None of the other commandments have the Lord's name there three times. And so we have the elements of a seal in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. And that's not surprising. Notice... What it says here in Hebrews 8.10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. By the way, this is describing the new covenant and he's still making it with Israel. So hopefully we're part of, you know, symbolic Israel, right? For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. Where is your mind? It's in your forehead. 
And what God is wanting to do, he's wanting to put our, his law into our minds. He wants us to embrace it. He wants us to make it a part of who we are. Not simply rigidly keep it according to the letter, but keep it according to the spirit. He wants it in our minds. And uh, that would include the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the commandment that tells us who God is. He's the creator. And it tells us who we are. We're his creatures. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 4 that the reason God is worthy of worship is because he is the creator. This really is all about, when we talk about the seal of God or the mark of the beast, we're really talking about this question, to whom do you belong? See this fellow, he's got the mark of the beast, right? He's a beast and he's been marked. In other words, you know, they want to know who does he belong to. Is he the farmer next door or is he mine, one of mine? Right, they're marked. And to whom do you belong? And these become signifiers of whom we belong to. We noticed before when we looked at the Sabbath in Ezekiel 20 verse 12, it says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The Sabbath becomes a sign between God and his people that God has set us apart for a holy purpose. The Bible says God set apart the Sabbath for a holy purpose and the Bible says he sets us apart for a holy purpose and in keeping the Sabbath that becomes a symbol of the fact that we are God's people and he is our God. That's what this is really all about. Notice in Revelation 14 verse 12, the end of that three angels' messages. You know, the third angel's message is a warning against worshipping the beast and his image and receiving the mark. And then it says this, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And when it says they keep the commandments of God, that would include the fourth one. So this is what it means. So then, if that is what constitutes the seal of God, what is the mark of the beast? Remember, we said who is the beast and we said that that is the Roman papal power. We've already worked that out. So what is Rome's mark of authority? Let me quote for you what they say it is. Not my words, but theirs. In the Catholic record of 1923, it said... Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. That should make you fall off your seat. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. So they're recognising that Sunday observance is their mark of authority. Why? Because they, they're the ones who brought it about. They're the ones who endorsed it. They're the ones who made a law regarding Sunday. Here's another one. This is uh, C.F. Thomas back in 1895. He says, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change, that's the change of the Sabbath to Sunday, was her act. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical authority in religious things. So here you have a couple of statements from the church saying this constitutes their mark of authority. Okay? Now I want you to notice something before you get too carried away. 
the mark of the beast, according to the Bible, is enforced Sunday observance, enforced religious observance, and now we've discovered that it's enforced Sunday observance, which means that nobody has the mark of the beast now. Because Sunday observance is not enforced, right? How many of you can remember Sunday trading laws? Some of you remember that? Well, you should, because they still exist. <laughs> Did you, are you aware that there are shops that don't open on Sunday, but there are also shops who open shorter hours on Sunday than any other day of the week? You're aware of that? Right? They're called Sunday trading laws. Where do they come from? Well, most of them came from Britain because they had their own Sunday trading laws. I remember walking around in my town on a Sunday when I was growing up and everything was closed. Right? And there still are Sunday trading laws, but they're not as enforced. We've sort of come to a place where they're not really enforced, but we're aware of them, right? We've heard about them before. And like I said, nobody has the mark of the beast right now because there is no enforced Sunday observance. And the Bible talks about the mark of the beast being enforced Sunday observance. Notice another Catholic document here. This is what they say. How prove you that the church has power to command feasts and holy days? By the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of and therefore fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking, breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. Rome has a point here. Rome is saying Protestants are contradicting themselves because they don't want to keep the Catholic feast days and holidays, but they still keep Sunday holy, which is a Roman Catholic command. You won't find that in the Bible. And so they, they make that point. And then the next question is, have you any other way of proving that the church has the power to institute festivals of precept? And he, the answer is given, had she not had such power, she could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural or authority. I think we've read that quote before. So the point is the church claims, the church at Rome, which is represented by that beast power. Now you, you understand, by the way, when we talk about the beast, we're not talking about a grotesque monster. We're simply saying that that animal, that creature, is a symbol of that nation, just as we did in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, here's another one. Want to earn yourself $1,000? I haven't got it on me. But T.N. Wright said this in 1884, and that's a long time ago, so $1,000 would have been worth a bit by then. He says, and he's a Roman Catholic, he says, I have repeatedly offered $1,000 to anyone who can prove to me from the Bible alone that I'm bound to keep Sunday holy. There is no such law in the Bible. Take it from a Roman Catholic. There is no such law in the Bible. It is a law of the Holy Catholic Church alone. The Bible says... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Catholic Church says no. By my divine power I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilised world bows down in a reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. 
See, it understands this. Many of us don't. But it understands what's going on here. They have substituted a command of God, they've taken it away and they've replaced it with a man-made law. Because the Bible says, the one whom you obey, you are that one servant whom you obey. All right, so Sunday is based on custom, tradition and the command of the Roman church. We've talked about that before. We noted that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, speaking about this little horn power in that chapter, it says, this power would intend to change times and law and this power has admitted that that's in fact what they have done. Now remember in our last presentation, we talked about the fact that the second beast, which is the United States, will form an image to the first beast and he will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. So in other words, this mark, which we now know to be enforced Sunday observance, is going to be enforced primarily by America. That's where it's going to come from first. That's what it's saying here. He, when it says he causes all, it's talking about this second beast causing people to receive it, um, receive it in the right hand and the forehead. What does it mean about the right hand and the forehead? What is that all about? Have you ever wondered? Well, notice what the Bible says here in Deuteronomy. This is Moses talking to God's people. He says, these words which, well, he's um, writing down the words of God. It says, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, what God was really saying, I want these commands of mine, I want them to be in your heart, I want them to be in your actions, that's what it means to be in the hand, and I want them to be in your mind. We already read about the fact that in the New Testament God wants to write his law on our mind. That's what it means to be in the forehead. So in the hand and in the forehead simply means in the actions and in the beliefs. That's really what it means. The Jewish people took this literally. And if you go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem today, I've been there a couple of times, you will sometimes see Orthodox Jews and they will have a little box strapped to their right hand or they'll have a little box strapped to their head and inside it are the words of Moses. They took that literally when God had says, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, you shall teach them to the children, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They literally bind them on their hands. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They literally bind it on the forehead. So here you have the Jews, even today, some Jews are still practicing this. And you can see that in Deuteronomy a couple of times. In Exodus it's mentioned in the hand and in the forehead. And by the way, even Jesus referred to this in Matthew 23 verse 5. He said of the religious leaders of his day, you make your phylacteries, that's those little boxes, they're called phylacteries. You can find it in that verse. Jesus says, you make those phylacteries broad so everybody can see them, but you actually don't do what God says. And so Jesus even refers to these things. And that's what it means in the head and in the hand, it's in the beliefs 
and in the actions. Now you'll notice that the seal of God was placed where? Only in the forehead, right? And that is because you have to believe. You can't just go along if you don't believe. With these, with enforced Sunday observance, you remember it had said that you won't be able to buy or sell if you don't cooperate. We learned about that in the last session. There'll be some people who truly believe and will go along with the church-state regulation. There'll be others who don't believe it, but they're going to go along because they don't want to lose the ability to buy or sell. It's like people pay their taxes. They don't pay them because they want to, because they just don't want to go to jail, right? <laughs> so they pay their taxes. And some people will comply. They'll comply with their actions, even if they don't necessarily believe. Notice the Bible says here in Revelation 13, 16 to 18, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, I want to, I'm going to deal with this number 666 as well, simply because some people think the mark of the beast is 666. It's not. 666, the Bible tells us right there, it's the number of the beast. That's different altogether. The number of the beast is simply another identifying characteristic of the beast power. So I'm going to deal with that simply because lots of people want to know what 666 is. But 666 is not the mark of the beast. We've already learned what that is. So what is 666 really all about? Well, from the Bible alone, we learn that it is the number of the beast, that it is the number of his name, the Bible says, and that it is the number of a man. Okay? So we learn all that just from the Bible alone. 666 is the number of the beast, it's the number of his, uh, his name, and it's the number of a man. Well, first of all, do we know who the beast is? Well, at this point, let's hope so. Right? It's the Roman church-state power. So, we can say without a doubt that the number of the beast, 666, is the number of the church-state power. It says it's the number of a man. One imagines that that would be the head of that organisation. And it says that it's the number of his name. How does this fit together? Well, let me um, share a bit of history with you. This is a painting. It's called The Donation of Constantine. It's based on a document that was written. It was written in the 8th century, but it was passed off. It was a forgery, and it was passed off as a document that came from the 4th century. The idea was that it's called the Donation of Constantine because the idea is that Constantine left Rome and went to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. That's why they call it Constantinople. Constantine went there and basically he donated Rome to the church. That's the idea of the Donation of Constantine, or at least the authority over Rome to the Pope. That's the idea. In this document called the Donation of Constantine, which, by the way, everybody recognises a fake today, Nobody doubts that it's a fake. The church recognises that it was a fake. But it was produced in the 8th century purporting to be 
from the 4th century and it was a document written by Roman Catholics in defence of Roman Catholic authority. And in it, the Pope is given a title which is Vicarious Filii Dei, which simply means, it means uh, Vicar of the Son of God. That's what it means. And that's the first time we see that title. Now, in Roman numerals, each of the Roman letters, Latin, the Roman letters, many of them have numerical values. So V equals 5 and I equals 1 and if uh, Steve Smith scores a century in the cricket, how many is that? A hundred, right? Because we know that's C for century, right? A has no numerical value, R has no numerical value, I is one. U is a V because they didn't have a U. They used the letter V. And if you see any uh, Latin writing, if you ever go to Rome and you see some of the inscriptions in Latin, they'll use the letter V for the letter U. So that represented five. And you can see that it adds up there 112, 53, 501, and it adds up to 666. This is the number of his name. Now, of course, this title, Vicarious Filii Dei, has been used through the centuries since that time, since the 8th century, as a title of the Pope. And uh, more recently, some people in the church have tried to sort of distance themselves from it. But... um, There was a Fox News program in 2007 where Father Edward Beck, he is a prominent Roman Catholic in the United States, he often appears on Fox News to uh, explain the the viewpoint of a Roman Catholic father on the various uh, news items or whatever. But there was a piece on the number 666 and I I want you to note what he says in that presentation. He says, if you take the Latin name that refers to all popes, Vicarious Filii Dei, which means Vicar of the Son of God. If you take the Roman numerals out of Vicarious Filii Dei, guess what they add up to? And he says 666. Now, of course, he doesn't believe you should interpret it that way. But what's very telling here is he's saying that this is the Latin name that refers to all popes. And he acknowledges that that's the name. And he acknowledges that the letters add up to 666. And so that's the meaning of this 666 title. If we go back here, it is the number of the beast, it's the number of the Roman power, it's the number of his name, literally, and it's the number of a man. And like I said, in 2007, uh, Father Edward Beck confirmed that for us on live television. So we've mentioned before the mark of the beast is enforced Sunday observance. And you might be thinking, well, that's never going to happen. We live in a free country, don't we? We have freedom of religion. Aren't you glad? We happen to live in this space where most of us have grown up with freedom all our lives. You know, we've, we've not had a war in our country, have we? Either in Australia or when I was living in Britain. Nobody was invading Britain. We've lived in this relative peace But the Bible says it's not always going to be that way. And there's been some interesting developments over the last 20 or so years in regards to Sunday observance. Back in 1998, 20 years ago, this is uh, the Sunday Times, prominent British newspaper, Pope launches crusade to save Sunday. This was Pope John Paul II. And uh, he's making an appeal to Roman Catholics, particularly, 
to remember the, their Sunday observance. This was in the Australian, Australian newspaper, and it says, the Pope last night issued a strongly worded appeal to Roman Catholics and to restore the sacred nature of Sunday. Reports uh, on, the, on forces that are praying, for the day of, are praying on the day of rest. Remember the Sabbath, it says. The Sabbath, remember? But it's not talking about the biblical Sabbath. It's talking about Sunday. In his letter, Pope John Paul II in 1998, he, he quoted Pope Leo, who was of many centuries previous. He says, Pope Leo XIII spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right, which the state much must guarantee. Therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our own time, Christians will naturally share, sorry, will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Here he's saying that Christians should be asking their legislators to protect Sunday so that people can worship on it. 2007, Pope Benedict, it says, um, Pope, ben Pope demands respect for Sunday. Pope Benedict XVI has appealed for renewed respect for Sundays as he celebrated Mass at St. Stephen's Cathedral in the heart of Vienna. Give the soul its Sunday. Give Sunday its soul, the Pope said. And um, you're probably thinking, well, yes, you know, that might be nice for them, but that's never going to happen in Australia, right? Well, this is Rachel Seward. She is a uh, Greens senator. And in October 2005, I don't know if you remember, John Howard was Prime Minister in Australia at the time. And John Howard was trying to push through some workplace reforms. You remember that? And there was a lot of opposition to that. And Rachel Seward released this um, report, Sunday Working and Family Time, in the Age newspaper. And it said, Sunday work doesn't work. Green Senator Rachel Seward, who released the report, called on Prime Minister John Howard to enshrine in law the sanctity of Sunday as the day for family life. Greens call for the right to refuse to work on Sundays. So here's, this is just interesting. You've got a Green Senator who's not particularly religious asking the Prime Minister to enshrine in law the sanctity of Sunday. And I think that when it comes, that will be the way it will come in. It will be, well, we all need a day of rest, right? I mean, we just, families need a day of rest. So which one will we choose? It's not going to be hard to see which one they would choose and which one will be legislated. There's a group in America called the, the Lord's Day Alliance of the USA. And uh, on there, Sunday as a mark of Christian unity, they say. But we want to ask the question, what does the Bible say? You know, there's a little rhyme that says... What says the Bible? The blessed Bible. This my only question be. The teachings of men so often mislead us. What says the Bible to me? Are we going to be willing to follow God's lead and God's example and God's commandments rather than the laws of men? European Sunday Alliance calls for on all politicians in Europe to act Press release in March 2013. European Sunday Alliance is a network of Sunday alliances, trade unions, civil society organisations and religious communities committed to raise awareness of the unique value of synchronised free time for our European societies. 
Synchronised free time. And of course they're talking about legislating for Sunday. I would say, you might think it's hard to imagine that happening. But in a time of crisis, you might be surprised what people are willing to do. You know, in the United States, there were many churches, half full, a lot of people, very secular, couldn't be bothered with religion. But when 9-11 hit, the following Sunday, all the churches were packed. Not only were the churches packed, they organised in, interdenominational church services in sports stadiums and they were packed. Because when 9-11 occurred, people said, maybe this is the end of the world. And people will do something in a crisis that they might not ordinarily do in a time of peace. And the Bible says there will come a time of trouble such as never was. I think we're seeing the brink of those things. We see various disasters. We've talked about the signs of the times earlier in these presentations. But I think in a time of crisis, you know, if there was a financial crash and a 9-11 and a Boxing Day tsunami all in the same week, I think people would be moved. I think people would be saying, hey, we need to get, get back to God. And I think I know which day they'd choose. And the problem with that is, it doesn't bother me if people want to worship on Sunday or Tuesday or they don't want to worship at all. People are free to do that, right? We have freedom. The problem comes when it's enforced upon people who don't see it that way. When you have a country that enforces religious observance, that becomes a problem. The Bible directs us to worship the Creator in Revelation 14, verse 7. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. And it's quoting there from the Sabbath commandment. We can either worship the Creator or we will end up worshipping the beast. Remember, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, Whomever you obey, you become that one servant of the one whom you obey. You might say, well, does it really matter? According to the Bible, it does. According to the Bible, it does. We're either going to worship the Creator or we're going to wind up worshipping the beast. You read Revelation chapter 13 through. It says, all the world marvelled and followed the beast. It says, all the world worshipped the beast. Except a little group of people who were written in the Lamb's book of life slain from the foundation of the world. Keeping God's commandments, keeping the Sabbath holy is not going to be popular. It may not even be convenient. But it is God's command. And God wants us to understand the issues that are involved at the end of time. There's another interesting passage that I haven't read yet from the third angel's message. And after it talks about don't worship the beast or its image or receive the mark, it says this, and they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark of his name. They have no rest. It's interesting, it doesn't say they will have no rest. They have no rest now. Because rest only comes from God. And it comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ who is also Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath rest. And it becomes symbolic of the rest that we have in Christ. Those who receive the mark of the beast and who worship the beast can have no rest because rest is only found in Christ. 
We mentioned this before, Romans 6.16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? We have a choice. Again, this passage we read in the end of our last presentation. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Now we can fill in the blanks, right? Standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. God wants us to get victory over these things. That's why he wants us to know what they are. If we don't know who the beast is and if we don't know what the image is and what the mark of the beast is, how are we ever going to know whether we're being deceived or not? The Bible says that the devil goes out to deceive the whole world and it's not difficult to see how he could do that. Again in Revelation 18.4, the Bible says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. The Bible talks about the seven last plagues. I don't have a presentation on that in this series, but I I have a presentation on the seven last plagues and talks about how God's people are under threat. The forces of the world at the end of time are about to annihilate God's people, but God steps in. And that's when the seven last plagues fall. And in a way, the seven last plagues are poured out in order to protect the people of God, to defend them because they're about to be wiped out. You can read stories in the Old Testament where God's people are surrounded by their enemies and they cry out to God and say, we have no hope but you. And God steps in and protects his people. And that's what God's going to do at the end of time. Jesus is appealing to us. If you love me, keep my commandments. God has demonstrated that he loved us. He he sent his son into the world to die on a cross, to give every person an opportunity to accept Christ and have their sins forgiven. I'm a sinner in need of a saviour. My only hope is Jesus. And Jesus says, I have done this because I loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says, I love you. Do you love me? If you love me, keep my commandments. How many of you want to say tonight, I want Jesus to be my personal saviour. I recognise that God loves me because of what Jesus did for me. And in return, I want to love him and keep his commandments. And I want to keep the Sabbath holy because that's what Jesus wants me to do. How many of you want to say, yes, I want to do that? Praise the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer before we go to the card tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for clearly revealing in the scripture the times in which we live. We want to thank you for clearly revealing to us what you want us to do and what you don't want us to do. Help us to recognise that the devil is a great deceiver and he's been working behind the scenes to manipulate the world, to to move them away from you and away from obedience to you. I pray, Lord, that we will determine in our hearts to respond in love to the love you have poured out upon us. The Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we may be called the children of God. Lord, may we accept that invitation 
May we choose to follow you wherever you go. Thank you, Lord, for making salvation possible. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.